contracts, intellectual property, labor law, and much more. Make up the, the wonderful world of entertainment law. Let's take a moment and learn about this vast area law. Lights, camera, action. And scene. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 25 of End Scene, an entertainment law podcast. I'm Tony Oikostas. And I'm Evan Narr. Tony, it's almost the end of summer, and summertime sadness is hitting. Uh, <laughs> to quote the great Lana Del Rey, who we spoke about in episode 19, figured it was appropriate because it's almost the end of August and summer's coming to an end very quickly. You know that summer is coming to an end when the new school year starts. And alas for me, I start my fifth year teaching at New York Law School next week, which is hard to believe. It's been five years. How crazy is that? That uh, is unbelievable. It's wonderful, really, honestly. Um, but we've got 52 students lined up for entertainment law this semester. Uh, so a little bit of a decrease. Normally we're in the 60s and 70s, but I think it's nice that I get a, a little bit of a reprieve, um, but still a pretty sizable class nonetheless. I actually just got back from New York Law School for an event where uh, the deans welcomed dinner, just hung out with Dean Crow a little bit and some former professors and new students, and I plugged the hell out of you. Nice. I, <laughs> I kept you. on talking about entertainment law and IP, so I got you. <laughs> I appreciate it. I'll, I'll pay you. I'll Venmo you the $50 later. <laughs> <laughs> no payment required. Uh, anyway, so guys, we have a very quick and fun episode for you guys today. First, we want to update you on the Lord of the Rings Rings of Power lawsuit we spoke about in episode 11. Uh, then we also want to talk about the latest with the Michael Orr lawsuit, the Baltimore Ravens offensive tackle. The, the Blindside movie was based on his story. We're also going to talk about Britney Spears and her divorce from Sam Ashgari. And we're going to have a little bit of a family law lesson in here because the grounds that Sam Ashgari cited for divorce will explain the the rationale behind that. And then also in light of Blue Beetle, DC's newest movie releasing, Tony and I will share our favorite superhero origin film. Uh, and I saw Blue Beetle actually, you know what? I'll save it for when we get to the to the fun topic. I, I, can't, I can't wait for the breakdown. Uh, but before we dive in, as always, Evan and I are lawyers, but we're not your lawyers. So anything that we say in today's episode is purely our opinion and not representative of our employers in any way, shape, and form. And anything that we say in today's episode is to not be construed as legal advice. Great. Thank you, Tony. So let's go into our first topic, the Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power lawsuit. We spoke about this on episode 11 when we had our in-person uh, recording at New York Law School when Elizabeth Chan was our guest on the podcast to talk about her suit with Mariah Carey. And we got her opinion on this, but Tony and I also spoke about this. Basically, Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power is an Amazon Prime TV show. The first season finished a few months ago, and I believe that they're, they, they greenlit a season two. Um, definitely did not get as high acclaim as the original trilogy. I mean, it's impossible to top what is arguably the greatest trilogy of all time. Uh, discourse aside, there was a lawsuit that was brought, lawsuit, excuse me, that was brought by Greek god Demetrius Polycron. The most Greek name you're ever going to meet. Honestly, that is as Greek as it gets. <laughs> and he wrote some fan fiction Lord of the Rings film uh, books, excuse me. I believe one of them was called like the Fellowship of the King. Uh, so kind of puns on the Fellowship of the Ring that is the original Lord of the Rings movie. And he brought a lawsuit suing the J.R.R. Tolkien, who's the author of 
the original uh, Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, suing his estate. And I, was Amazon named in there as well? Yeah, I assume named. they Am- have to be. Amazon Studios and uh, Tolkien Enterprises were the named parties in this $250 million lawsuit. And um, that $250 million is, of course, attributed to the, the the price tag that Amazon ended up paying Tolkien Enterprises for the use of, you know, th- well, basically for licensing this uh, narrative and adapting it in a, in a show format for Amazon Prime. Right. And attorneys that are listening to this, you've heard of a 12B6 uh, motion to dismiss. So basically what was alleged was Polycron went to the Tolkien estate, and I think Tolkien is survived by some of his grandchildren and whatnot, and delivered some uh, one of the books. But we never really knew if the Tolkien estate signed off on this. So we never knew if they actually read or saw the book. And Polycron's lawsuit alleged several different similarities between the Rings of Power um, show and his book, even down to the cover and and the poster and and the scenes that happened in the actual show. So 12B6 motion, Tony, what's the legal ramifications of this all? This means that this case was dismissed. Uh, It was, in fact, dismissed with prejudice. So that means that uh, Demetrius Polycron cannot bring this lawsuit back in court. It's done and over with the final ruling. And essentially, the argument that was being made, or at least that the court uh, cited here with Tolkien Enterprises on, is that you know this was there. There isn't anything copyrightable about dragons and mythological creatures and c- kind of like this medieval nature that runs rampant through the uh, Tolkien series of all the Hobbit, Lord of the Rings books, uh, book series. Um, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, that's something that is very common across other, uh, you know, by other authors across this genre of fantasy, sci-fi, medieval times uh, books. But it's the way that J.R.R. Tolkien was able to tell that story with his own characters, with his own narrative to it. That's what makes it copyrightable. That said, I'm so glad that this came up because in the ruling, the judge said that if anything, what Demetrius Polycron did by writing this fan fiction was a derivative work of the original. So if anyone is actually committing infringement, it's more likely Demetrius Polycron, not so much <laughs> Amazon Studios or uh, Tolkien Enterprises, which, I mean, you could have told me this. I don't know how this ended up. I mean, well, th- this just underlines how easy it is to buy an index number. That doesn't guarantee a win in court. But anyone could have told you that this was such a, a really, really... Um, like long shot of a lawsuit for Polycron, but here we are talking about it. And obviously it's a, it's a loss for him in the books. Yeah. No pun intended. And uh, a loss for him in the books. And just to reiterate guys that the derivative works, Tony and I have spoken about it before. It's one of the rights that you have as a copyright owner, such that, you know, Tolkien who owns the copyright probably for Lord of the Rings has the right to grant Amazon Studios, the ability to make a Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power, a derivative work of his original work, whereas a fan fiction, which you can make, what, there's probably a copyright defense for it, maybe. Not uh, really. It's it's, it's parody, parody, maybe, but... If you are indeed writing a parodic book, but this is, there was, there doesn't seem to be anything parodic in nature with a book of his, his nature. Right. So I don't, I mean, I'm, as an attorney, you have to find the best argument, even if it's a losing argument. I don't even know what I would argue if, if they were to sue me. 
I don't and know. I'm, and I'm Polycron. I mean, I honestly, I would just, I mean, at that point, I would just take the L. I don't even, <laughs> <laughs> I, what I will say is that it, what could have been the better route is maybe instead of fighting this out in a full-blown lawsuit, maybe work out some type of license agreement where mm. maybe maybe settle it out of court. Uh, that that way you're not you know subject to a, a 12B motion, 12B6 motion um, and embarrass yourself in court. And, uh, and, you know, at the end of the day, if you worked out a license deal where you did get the license to create a derivative work based on the Lord of the Rings uh, book series and the Hobbit series, maybe you could have had a thriving book series that maybe would have done very well on Amazon. But I think if I recall, we even talked about it in episode 11, the book series didn't even hit, Polycron's book series barely got any reviews. If I, I think it had like seven ratings or something. So there you go. So it had no exposure whatsoever. The fact that this would, that he's bringing this lawsuit to begin with, where it's not even well known to the public. I don't know if we can foreseeably see that this is a, you know, that that's going to contribute to like, let's say the whole axis substantial similarity prong that's important also to the analysis of copyright infringement. Very interesting. So that's a uh, unfortunate dismissal for Mr. Polycron, a win for Amazon Studios and the Tolkien estate. And let's move on to our next topic. So next on the docket, let's talk about Michael Orr. Michael Orr was a Ole Miss college football player, and then he went into the NFL and played for the Baltimore Ravens and the Carolina Panthers, an offensive tackle protecting the, no pun intended, the blind side of quarterbacks. Uh, The quarterback, as you can imagine, has to have his head on a swivel but can't look behind his back all the time, so the blind side protects defenders from sacking the quarterback and taking a loss for the team. So it's a very, very integral role on the offensive line. So why have you heard this name Michael Orr before? You probably heard of his name because you saw the film The Blind Side that came out in 2009 starring Sandra Bullock and Tim McGraw. Sandra Bullock actually won an Academy Award and an Oscar for her portrayal of Leanne Tui, the the two uh, people that her and Tim McGraw respectively portrayed, Leanne Tui and Sean Tui. She won an award in 2009 or 10 at the Oscars for her portrayal of Leanne Tui. As you can imagine, this probably garnered more financial success for the movie. I think I read online it it garnered over $300 million or so. You know, we we see a lot of documentary movies happening a lot. Uh, The most recent one that I can imagine, a football one, is American Underdog, starring Zachary Levi as the uh, quarterback Kurt Warner. Kurt Warner played for the Cardinals, for the Rams, and he was, in all aspects of the word, an underdog. And that, I think, had a box office gross of around $26 million. We're talking $300-plus million here. And an Academy Award uh, portrayal. You know, love Zachary Levi, but th- this was not a Academy Award-winning performance. So what happened here? Why is Michael Orr in the news? So it came to light that Michael Orr filed a lawsuit against the Tui family, family excuse me, alleging that the family never legally adopted him and lied about their familial status for profit. And I forgot to mention, the whole story is about this white family uh, bringing in this black man to be part of their family, to you know, and, and bring him to school to Ole Miss, where I believe the Tuies were alum of, or they had some sort of uh, integration with Ole Miss. And it was a really uplifting story, you know, of, of, of adopting someone who I believe um, I think he was in in a, in a home or something along those lines. I haven't seen the movie in quite a long time, so. Anyway, very uplifting story. He had some success in the NFL. 
So he, he filed this lawsuit against the Tui family saying that they never legally adopted him, him and lied about their familial status for profit. So, Tony, what, what are the legal implications here? What does the conservatorship really allow the Tui family to do? Why do you think Michael Orr is so upset about this? And also, what do you think about the, the timing of all of this? You know, he's he must have known he's he's an old he's in, you know, a man. He's 30 something years old. He, he must have known at some point. Why do you think? This is coming to light now. So uh, this actually came to light because he he just recently wrote a book and he exposes about this um, about this conservatorship and uh, it's very it's very uh, it's a very troubling uh, story once you get to the nitty gritty details that have been reported by ESPN and a bunch of other outlets. Um, but we uh, we should also take a moment to acknowledge that we've definitely heard the term conservative conservatorship in the last few years, especially in light of uh, Britney Spears, who is very convenient that we're just going to talk about her a little later in the podcast. You, you, you took away my segue, so <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> but um, you know, the whole notion of a conservatorship is that you basically have a legal guardian who can make the decisions for you, the individual. The premise of a conservatorship, though, is that the person that is the subject of it, it is not capable of making decisions, legal decisions for themselves. It could be because of a mental issue. It could be because of a health issue, anything of that sort. Now, what's kind of troubling then about a situation like this with Michael Orr, I mean, as you correctly mentioned, the story portrays, the movie portrays him being in a very uh, in very, in very down times, he was homeless practically. And, you know, he didn't really have a stable home structure around him. Um, this is also well documented in the Michael Lewis book that the movie is based off of. So, you know, this is obviously someone that I think could comprehend his decisions and understand, you know, who he was and what he was capable of doing. But I think, at the end of the day, to be hoodwinked, thinking and thinking that he was signing adoption papers when in fact he was signing conservatorship. I mean, that is the essence of fraud. That is, in every sense of the word, that um, you know the fact that he even worked with the Tuies on this film. I mean, that the fact that he didn't see a penny of that also very troubling. And I think that gets to the root of how this conservatorship was truly a lie all along. Um, I really think that. Um, we would have a very different conversation about this if, uh, you know, let's say, you know, we, we found out through, uh, you know, some other means that he was involved in a, in a conservatorship of like, let's say there was some type of expose and the family, you know, denied, denied, denied. And obviously the Tui family has been very adamant about denying it to the point that they even held a press conference this week, um, totally dismissing all the claims that were made by Michael Ower. But conveniently enough, earlier today, today is August 17th, earlier this afternoon, the Tui's finally conceded and I guess owned up to the fact that they did in fact uh, get Michael Ower. Um, he was he had been duped into uh, signing conservatorship papers rather than adoption papers. And they have finally agreed to release him from his conservatorship as a result of this. So kind of brings to light, I think, uh, two things here. One, um, will, you know, when, when you have the court of public opinion, when you have people out, out here, um, whether you're talking about legal commentators or the everyday person talking about a very disturbing story like this, that, that can, that's capable of, of changing the narrative in, in some drastic way. 
But it's very interesting because we have the attorney for the Tuies come out, and this is a direct quote, um, the evidence documented in profit participation checks and studio accounting statements is clear. Over the years, the Tuies have given Mr. Orr an equal cut of every penny received from the blind side. Even recently, when Mr. Orr started to threaten them about what he would do unless they paid him an eight-figure windfall and, as part of that shakedown effort, refused to cash the small profits checks from the Tuies, they still deposited Mr. Orr's equal share into a trust they set up for his son, for, into a trust account they set up for his son, Mr. Orr's son. So, I mean, there, there's conflicting evidence. I mean, and Tony, you say, you talk about court of public opinion, like, Yes, as recently as today, there's an, there was an alert that came out that said the Tuies would end the conservatorship. So, I mean, clearly there is a conservatorship here. I mean, there, there's no denying that at all. But, I mean, I don't know if the story is true in which they bamboozled him into not getting any money and signing away all of his life rights and all of this stuff. It seems, at least according to here, an actual irrefutable evidence of documentary uh, things from the studios that he was paid. So he was was paid. It's a matter of whether he had access to that money, which is what conservatorships could basically limit. Absolutely. Right. Um, And then I think that then leads into the second question that I do have, which is if we're having this discussion about the movie, is this the same arrangement that was made for his playing contracts with the Ravens and the Panthers? Interesting. And the the Titans, I forgot to add. And the Titans. I mean, were these, were his playing contracts also deposited and lumped into a trust fund or did he have access to it? That's also another question I think, I mean, I don't know if we'll ever get the answer to it, but it is worth worth knowing how much limitation did Michael Orr really have as a result of being a part of this conservatorship with the Tuies. So it's a really, uh, really fascinating story. I mean, the fact that we finally have some movement, you know, initially denial and finally concession uh, does does kind of paint a light of, you know, how this could have played out for the Tui family. It, you know, I think they would rather have a limited amount of bad press versus having longstanding bad press. But, um, you know, I, I think it's it's great that Michael Ower spoke up and there is a bit of a shakedown on this front. Yeah. And e- even though they are going to end the conservatorship, I don't know if they're bad people necessarily. Because no. And again, this is just a quote from their attorney again. And, and you, the attorneys are going to swing the the statements any which way. Through hard work and good fortune, Sean and Leanne have made an extraordinary amount of money in the restaurant business. The notion that a couple worth that hundreds of millions of dollars would connive to withhold a few thousand dollars in profit participation payments from anyone, let alone someone they loved as a son, defies belief. It's very, very interesting. I agree with that, honestly. I don't think that there was bad intent, but it does make me wonder what was the motive to have him sign on a conservatorship. And I think maybe maybe on one hand, they were doing it to protect him. But then if that's the case, if he's a grown adult, why not surrender it voluntarily? I mean, that that's the other thought that also has crossed my mind. It is, I think, like you like you said before, one, it, we don't we have conflicting evidence and there's just like so many variables at play here. We won't, I don't think, ever get really the straight story. But it is, uh, you do have two sides of the coin here that we can't really ignore. Also, and lastly, before I move on, there's also calls for Sandra Bullock to give up her Oscar, which is no the great. Please. Well, that, are you are you saying no? That's not true. Or? No, no, that's not that will never happen, and she right. should not do that. No way. 
So it's very interesting. And and even the guy who played Michael Orr, uh, Quentin Aaron, he says, uh, according to a TMZ article, I got a good sense from all of them, talking about the Tui family. They were real cool to me. He also rejected calls online for Bullock to give up her Oscar. I mean, I don't know. I agree with you, Tony. I don't think that she should be giving up her Oscar. If there was some detrimental things that went on with this whole conservatorship, I understand that. But to give back an Oscar, which has happened before, by the way, um, I did see an article that people have given back an Oscar before. Uh, I don't think that she should be mired in all this controversy, but she's we'll being see. she's being lauded for her performance as Leanne Tui. I don't think that her performance as Leanne Tui is it's it's mutually exclusive of whatever actions the Tui family independently did. You know, apples and oranges here. They should not be lumped into the same discussion. Absolutely. All right. So even though Tony stole my segue, let's move into another child of a conservatorship. That is Britney Spears. You have to know who Britney Spears is. Britney has iconic hits like Toxic, Hit Me Baby One More Time, Oops, I Did It Again, My Prerogative, which is actually a, that's a spinoff of another song. It's derivative work. I think Bobby Brown or something has, you know, that's right. Yeah. Everybody's talking all that, not cursing on this podcast. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, Britney Spears is, and she actually was uh, in the news somewhat recently when her father released her from her conservatorship, there were actual protests outside courthouses were asking uh, Mr. Spears to release him. I believe his name is Sam Spears, but let me confirm Jamie Spears, excuse me. Uh, which is ironic because her sister's name is Jamie Lynn Spears. But either way, this unfortunately, this family is mired in controversy. Um, You know, Brittany's been around for some time since the late 90s. But in any event, she's finally finding herself. She posts all these videos on Instagram. She's seemingly happy. And recently, about a year and a half ago, 14 months ago, she got married to Sam Ashgari. Uh, I don't think Sam Ashgari is in the Hollywood limelight. Have you heard of him before? I think he's just like a, like a dancer. I think that's, Oh, maybe. And as a matter of fact, I think they had met on set in one of her music videos and because of her, actually, I only know this because of the uh, New York times uh, special that was on Hulu about her conservatorship. Um, They weren't able to get married because of the conservatorship. Once she was released oh. from it, then they could be able to get married. And the, the whole premise of it, of course, getting back to conservatorship, they, you know, the argument is that she can't, at least what Jamie Spears was arguing, was that um, you know, she can't contemplate or fathom making mental decisions. Right. You know, obviously she's had a history of certain um, you know, uh events that have happened that kind of, I guess, really did connect quite well to how this conservatorship ended up happening. And so um you know, once the conservatorship ended, that's when they got engaged and they got married. Very interesting. So let, let's break this down. It And th- this is from an article. In 2021, Forbes estimated that Britney Spears' fortune is around $60 million. Of course, with a, you know, a net worth of that much, it makes sense to sign a prenup just so things don't get messy. Uh, and U.S. Weekly reported the prenup stipulates Ashgari will receive $1 million per every two years of their marriage with a cap of $10 million after 15 years. So breaking that down, $1 million per every two years of their marriage. So they weren't married for two years. They were married for 14 months. So he'll probably get 
less than a million, probably also, uh, you know, attorney's fees and things of that nature, spousal support. Um, But in order to divorce someone, you need to cite a ground for doing so. And the ground that Ashgari cited was irreconcilable differences. Uh, Irreconcilable differences is a term of art. It basically means that you can't you know what you're it's laughing so, at. It, it's because it's it's always the default excuse that's yeah. always using divorces it, it means that you and your spouse like can't get along enough to keep the marriage alive and it, it's the easiest grounds for divorce and 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 i'm almost positive my family law is a little shaky but you need to cite some ground like in, you know whether that's infidelity or something you can't just say oh you know what See ya, because you won't be legally divorced. And certain states, I think, even have specific uh, grounds for divorce. So, like for example, if I if I'm not mistaken, in California, I believe that there is um, a, a very specific uh, ground of fraud that you can file that you uh-huh. use to file for divorce. If, like, let's say your spouse, um, who who you know you who you thought was you know, was the love of your life and all that, ended up engaging in let's say um, you know extramarital uh, extramarital affairs, but also you know, contracted, let's say, a sexually transmitted disease, gave it to you, never disclosed it, that could be the kind of thing that could be grounds for, I guess, a fraud, you know, cause of action in in a divorce action in California. So we wanted to bring this up because I I saw this tweet, um, and also it's all over social media sites too, that Sam Ashgari is threatening to release extraordinarily embarrassing information about Britney if the prenup is not renegotiated. Now I have, and, and I'm not discrediting any news sources, but you know this is on page six and like the Sun. Um, I haven't seen this on you know a People or a CNN or what have you, but a source close to the situation told Extra TV again, not like a CNN or or a Fox News or whatever, that this is just not true, that Ashkari is looking for uh, to release embarrassing information if he doesn't get his way. So very interesting. Uh, he technically, Ashkari, there's always room to ask for more money beyond just the prenup. You can get spousal support, attorney fees. He could try for more. Um, I think worth noting, I think Ashkari is from Australia, and the United States of America and Australia uh, are two of the places that allow for jurisdiction or excuse me for irreconcilable differences as a means for divorce so very interesting and then also i wanted to share as well that octavia spencer who is an oscar award-winning actress commented on this page six article on on instagram and said extortion is illegal to the caption that says Sam Ashkari threatening to release extraordinarily embarrassing Britney Spears info if prenup is not renegotiated. And Thank she's correct. Yes. She's very correct. Thank you, Octavia Spencer. Thank she you. is correct. Extortion is illegal. Extortion is also another term of art. It's, it's a crime in most jurisdictions where you're basically threatening to release damning information if you don't receive some sort of compensation or get the person to do something. Usually it's monetary value, um, but it could get, it could mean, you know, I'm going to tell your girlfriend you cheated on her. If you don't break up with her, that's extortion. I don't know if you could sue someone for that, but maybe. Where we've seen extortion play out pretty heavily has been on the uh, revenge porn side of things. Yes. You know, couples who were, you know, involved in a very longstanding relationship, they suddenly break up. And as a way to get back at the person, they release very privileged, you know, content, you know, perhaps, you know, content that would be for private eyes between the couple. 
displaying that for the public, that is extortion in every sense of the word. And, you know, I think this line, this line of tactic that Sam Ashgari has, if it's true, this blackmail approach is very illegal. And I don't know who his legal advisor is that's sitting back and letting him do this if that's if, in fact, that is the truth. But I would hope to God that that's not the case. And very interesting. I I see a, a story by Sam Ashgari. He was with Brittany for six years. After six years of love and commitment to each other, my wife and I have decided to end our journey together. I'm curious. Well, technically, they weren't married because you talk about the conservatorship, right? And Jamie Spears, you know, not allowing Brittany to get married. Does the prenup only count for those 14 months? Do they take into consideration the more than a half decade of time that they spent together? Actually, I'm not sure. that, so that may also depend on whether California acknowledges common law marriage. Oh, yeah. Which I don't know if they do. I, common law marriage is pretty much like done and over with. New York once, once upon a time used to acknowledge common law marriages. I don't I don't think they do anymore. But um, I mean, it does but, not. It does not. I just looked it up. That, that that's uh, so that's good to know. So, you know, odds are they were just boyfriend and girlfriend living, you know, living in each other's houses and, you know, having a grand old time. But uh, basically, whatever they whatever was jointly theirs um, really doesn't qualify as marital assets unless they were married. So basically for the last 14 months that they were married, that is subject to being marital property, likely what's what will be divided down the line as per the prenup. Now that said, I think there is a reason there is a, uh, there is a world where that prenup could be negotiated even after the fact. And I'm sure that right. they, through a settlement, through arbitration, what have you, I mean, that's how divorce negotiations always happen. You can always negotiate beyond the terms of what are in the prenup. That I think is going to happen. But, um, you know, beyond that, it's it's whatever was covered under the scope of the prenup. That's what's going to, that that's the subject of, you know, potentially being split among Brittany and Sam. And to wrap up um, for you legal eagles out there, common law of marriage, we threw that that term out there. Common law marriage is when two people, you know, act and cohabitate as if they are married, although not legally. Cohabitate, look at that. <laughs> it's term of art. <laughs> although not legally recognized under the law, uh, you know, like with a, with an actual license. Uh, but some some states did recognize or, or still do recognize common law. Uh, you know, if you live long, long enough with someone or – you know, the, the, uh, they spent has, six years together. I was going to say, I think it has to be like a year, if I'm not mistaken. That's the threshold. If that is, does, does my memory serve me correct on that? Do you know? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it, so, it sounds it sounds right. It, it sounds about right. But yeah, yeah, basically can't it can't be like you've lived with each other for three weeks and you're a common law husband and wife. You have to have lived with each other for an extended period of time for it to qualify. So maybe I think a year is a safe bet. But I would say like if you've been living with each other for five years, I think that there's a reasonable argument to be made that you're a common law husband and wife. Absolutely. All right, let's wrap this baby up. So the movie Blue Beetle is coming out today or well tomorrow depending on whenever you listen to it it comes out thursday friday uh i got to see an early screening of it and i actually really did enjoy it um jolo mariduena plays uh blue beetle uh jaime reyes and it was a very good movie i think george lopez stole the show he was unhinged hilarious (laughs) um and you know so often these origin stories don't hit the mark you know uh but some of them do and i i can wholeheartedly say, uh, you know, DC with all the craziness that's going on in terms of leadership uh, and in terms of their direction, this was a step in the right direction. And I think that it's going to do well, hopefully. 
Um, with that in mind, we talk about origin stories. This is where a superhero gets its its beginning, right? And we we see how Spider-Man becomes Spider-Man, how Iron Man becomes Iron Man, how Batman becomes Batman. So Tony and I thought we would say what our favorite superhero origin film is in light of Blue Beetle, which is an origin movie uh, releasing. So Tony, why don't you go first? Um, I'm going to go with Shang-Chi. Okay. Really, really like that story a lot. I would say if I had to rank it, it's definitely in my top 10 favorite MCU films. Um, Obviously, I could go for the predictable ones like a Spider-Man or um, Iron Man. But I I think there's something special about Shang-Chi in so many ways. Um, You know, it's this character that you really don't hear often about. Um, He's not like, you know, he's not he doesn't bring like, let's say, the same gusto as like the the Avengers characters, if you will. But if you're true, like true to heart Marvel Comics fan, you've definitely heard of Shang-Chi. But the story is great. Simu Liu does a great job portraying the character. And I think the flashbacks to how, look at that, he's got his, uh, if, if, you, if you don't see it, Evan's uh, flashing his uh, Simu Liu Shang-Chi character. Um, but, you know, the, the, you know, the, the Simu Liu, you know, the, the Shang-Chi character really does grapple with, like you know what his up what his upbringing was with his father and uh what it's like to kind of be an everyday citizen and it's a really it's like a story of duality and i think he comes to grips with the fact that he is destined for greatness and he just has to commit the willpower to being a superhero and using his powers for good as opposed to what his father was doing which was for evil to try to overtake the world um, very, very, uh, really great movie. And, um, I just think that that's a really powerful superhero origin story. I haven't revisited since revisited it since I last saw it when it came out, I think November, 2021, give or take. So I'll have to revisit it, but yeah, I, I enjoyed Shang-Chi and I very, uh, interesting choice from you. I would think Batman, Michael Keaton, you talk about that so much. Um, but I guess I was wrong. You know what? Honestly, I picked Batman so many times I needed, (laughs) I needed to mix it up a little bit. (laughs) I don't blame you. Um, my favorite would probably be Deadpool. Um, I think it's just, I'm a, I'm a humor guy and I think Ryan Reynolds plays Deadpool to a T. The quotes are just so, you know, uh, so memorable there. A fourth wall break inside a fourth wall break. That's like 16 walls. (laughs) Like, you know, it's just so funny, and uh, they're coming out with a third movie with Hugh Jackman. Um, but I really, there was actually heart. You know, one thing that I really evaluate my superhero movies on is the heart behind it, and his love with Vanessa, him dying of cancer, and having to go through, uh, you know, this whole process, and 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 coming to terms with I'm going to die. Like that's something that people in the real world can relate to. Um, so I, I just thought it was a great movie. Ryan Reynolds, you know, hats off to him. Uh, Deadpool 2 was equally as great uh, with Josh Brolin as Cable. Fantastic. That's my choice. Let's wrap it up. Episode 25 here of End Scene. Thank you all for continuing to listen to us. Over to Tony with the rest. Uh, of course, we want to thank Hunter's Aaron for the intro. Uh, Evan and I are not in PNT Knitwear, but we always want to give a shout out to them. PNT Knitwear Podcast and Bookstore located at 180 Orchard Street in Lower East Side. And as always, just a little reminder that Scene is on Shake, S-H-A-Y-K. You can use your referral code Scene to join the discussion with Evan and I on all things entertainment law. And you can use that as an opportunity to ask any questions that you have about any entertainment law related topics. And most importantly, we want to thank all of you for listening to this week's episode of Scene and Entertainment Law Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out to us on all social media platforms at Pod. And until next time, 
End scene.